Hello, and welcome to Primetime, a podcast about the power of television and how it affects and reflects our culture. I'm your host, Emily Vanderwerf. So the 50th anniversary of the moon landing is coming up. It's been 50 years since Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin bounced around on the moon and everybody around the world saw those images. And I got to tell you what I'm interested in as somebody who's interested in television is how did they even get those images back to the planet? Like what an interesting technological feat that was. So I thought of somebody perfect to ask about this. His name is Robert Stone. He is the director and has many other titles. I'm going to list them all in just a second of the new PBS documentary, Chasing the Moon, which will air over three nights. It's a really riveting film on a subject that has had many, many films made about it. And yet I found every second of it fascinating. I think you will too. There's also a companion book if you prefer to have your experience of talking about the moon landing in the page form. Now, we're going to talk to Robert for about 40 minutes. We chatted about everything from getting those images back from the moon to what it is about the space program that holds such allure for us. And yes, we talked about whether the moon landing was faked or not. And uh, spoilers, it wasn't. It's a really fascinating chat. I hope you'll listen to it. And it's going to start right now. Thank you for joining us, Robert. Thanks for having me. So you obviously did a lot of research to make this movie, learned a lot of new things, all of that. What was the thing that most surprised you when you learned it about this event that I think a lot of us think we know really well? Well, I think maybe the most surprising thing of all is that there are still so many surprises. Um, you know, uh, you'd think a story like this is a bit that's been picked over so many times over, over many, many years, and especially this year with the 50th anniversary coming up. The fact that we were able to uncover so many new stories was uh, was amazing to me. Um, I mean, I'd say three sort of standouts would be the fact that uh, President Kennedy in 1961, about six weeks after proposing we go to a, the moon by the end of the decade, was kind of freaking out about the cost and met with uh, his counterpart, uh, Soviet Premier Khrushchev, and proposed that they do a joint mission to the moon. Six weeks after saying, let's go to the moon. It's amazing. And then Khrushchev turned him down. They, he re, Kennedy revisited the idea in the fall of 1963. And uh, the information we got from Premier Khrushchev's son was that Khrushchev, through back channels, accepted the proposal about a month before Kennedy was assassinated. Of course, Kennedy, and Kennedy was killed and Khrushchev was overthrown about nine months later. And that proposal went down the drain. And we also uncovered uh, a great story about uh, the Kennedy administration's effort to integrate the early astronaut corps. They recruited an African-American fighter pilot, uh, Air Force pilot, who had an advanced degree in aeronautical engineering, sent him out to Edwards Air Force Base to train with Chuck Yeager. If anybody's seen The Right Stuff, they'll know that yeah, yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. And he, we found the guy. He's, an inc- he's got an incredible story. Came very close. Kennedy wanted to see a black American on the moon. Also, we profile the one and only woman in Apollo mission control during the, during the Apollo era, who's also got an incredible story and ended up becoming a, a founding member of the National Organization of Women. And yeah, she's great. So there's lots of other stories once you look below the surface, you know? It's kind of fascinating because as a kid, you know, learning about this in school, all I ever heard was, you know, John F. Kennedy says, we're going to go to the moon. And then however long later it happens. And like, 
in there he's assassinated. So I just kind of, I guess, wrote him out of that story. But so much of it, like, was set by him, it sounds like. And, and from seeing the film, that's that's really clear. Well, definitely it was his, it, it wasn't a public outcry for, for us to go to the moon when he made this proposal. <laughs> so it was clearly a leadership initiative on his part. And interestingly, popular support for going to the moon was never very strong throughout the 1960s. I mean, people said, the polling suggests people said, well, yeah, it's nice to go to the moon, but if you ask them whether it was worth it and if this should be our national priority, the majority of Americans said no, with two exceptions being uh, when Apollo 8 went around the moon, the first mission around the moon, and then a brief, uh, briefly during Apollo 11 did the majority of Americans think it was worth it. Uh, yeah, the the mythology of the of the of the Apollo moon race is you know Kennedy makes a speech, C- Congress appropriates money, NASA gets to work, and mission accomplished. But it was so much more complicated than that, and it, it's so many twists and turns, and it could have gone in a a hundred different directions or 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 failed completely. There were so many prognostications that we'd just never make it. Um, and we revisit all of that in the movie and the book um, by playing this all out as it happened without, you know, without looking at it from, uh, from a contemporary perspective. That's, I remember one of my favorite, um, Twitter feeds for a long time was it sort of tweeted out events of World War II as they happen. There's something really interesting to digging into the chronology of these historical events that we think we all know. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering like what you think can be learned from going back and just being like, okay, what happened day to day? What happened beat by beat in this big story that we kind of just know the highlights of? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's what was so fascinating when you if you if you look back at, at history and you know we're talking about the history of the race to the moon here, but it could apply to anything. And you and you study how these events were covered in the, the, the in the news media contemporaneously. You have a whole different perspective on things because they don't know how things are going to turn out, right? At the at the moment, nobody knows. Um, so to make a movie, you know, uh, the great the, what, what you want in a movie is to keep the audience at the edge of their seat, wondering what's how it's all going to turn out. We can do that by by taking that approach, even though everybody knows. Okay, we went to the moon. What they don't know is uh, how people were experiencing it as it unfolded day to day throughout the 1960s, as we were preparing an anticipation of, of sending humans beyond the earth for the first time and going to another world. And to see that all play out and the drama of, you know, yeah, maybe we could have had an African-American astronaut on the moon. You know, maybe that would have been a joint mission. Maybe the whole thing would have collapsed uh, after the uh, three astronauts died in the Apollo 1 fire in 67. Or, any, or, or Apollo 8. Maybe they'd been stuck going around the moon and nobody would look at the moon the same way again. You know, all of these were possibilities that were playing out at the moment. Yeah, I, I like I remember reading the the letter that Nixon wrote in case the astronauts died on the moon and I was like, wow, like if, if there were dead people on the moon, would I like look at it the same way? I don't know that I would. That would no, be, I don't think you would. It'd be looking like a graveyard <laughs> or something. No, it'd be weird. Yeah, he said it was something like they came in peace and they will rest in peace or something like that. Yeah, it was written mm-hmm. by uh, the famous speechwriter William Sapphire. But they yeah, were all ready yeah. for for a disaster. I mean, it was an incredibly risky mission. That's that's the other thing. We, because everything worked out so spectacularly well, we kind of forget how daring and risky the whole thing was. Yeah, yeah. I one. Th- so we're sort of we talk a lot about television. We talk a lot about movies on this podcast, and I'm interested in all of that. So when you were preparing this film, what kind of um, it see it would seem to me like the footage from 
the Apollo program from the moon, all of that, like we've seen all of it. Like, like how did you sort of go about finding new footage or recontextualizing old footage or finding ways to like make these images that we we've seen and, and known before in, in interesting and new to us? Well, I think first off, uh, we went way beyond the NASA collection, which is, I think most documentaries have focused mostly on using NASA footage and mostly, um, on telling the, 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 you know, the astronaut's story. And so by telling this broad sweep of history, you know, we begin in 1944 with the V2 rockets in Germany, uh, and we go all the way to Tranquility Base and beyond. So the scope of the film and the book is just a much bigger portrait than simply looking at the missions, you know, the Apollo missions. Yeah. Not only do we have NASA stuff that's never been seen before, but we've got incredible footage from um, other sources that's never been seen before, largely because nobody ever looked for it. You know, they just there's so much great stuff in the NASA collection. People have just been making movies about that again and again and again. Obviously, the, the actual footage from the moon landing is 50 years old, but some of the stuff you're talking about is approaching 60 years old. Like, what state is that sort of footage in? Like, what work do you have to do to repair it or to, like, get it ready to be in a movie like this? We did a lot of restoration. We spent months and months and months restoring uh, footage and, you know, removing every little speck of dust. I got a little OCD about it, I must say. <laughs> you know, <laughs> once, you, once you start down the road, you know, you clean up one shot and then like the next one comes along. It's, oh man, that's got a lot of dirt. Oh, yeah, let's, And then you get like six hours of it and it's like, yeah, next thing you know, you're, you're deep into it and everybody thinks you're nuts. But the end result is, uh, the end result is, is, is really worth it. We were really able to restore this stuff and it, you know, it was it ran the gamut. You know, this crazy Russian footage that was shot on this crazy Russian film stock has a certain weird look to it. Wherever possible, we tried to go back to the original source, the original film, and not copies of it. Pristine thirty-five millimeter film and home movies and sixteen millimeter stuff, color, black and white. Every it ran the gamut. So the big, from a from a filmmaking point of view, was to try. Uh, the one of the difficulties was just trying to make it seamless visually, which I think we, I think we succeeded in doing, but it was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I was curious about is I assume like the actual footage from Apollo, the, the NASA footage, I assume that's really well preserved, but I, I guess I don't know. Like, like, do we have really well preserved footage of the moon landing? Yes. Yeah. Um, except the, the, the one exception to that is the actual video footage of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon, which oh. uh, NASA lost. <laughs> oh, <Wow>. what? <laughs> yes. How do you lose that? <laughs> you want, you'd wonder, well, what happened, it's an interesting story. What happened was that the Westinghouse developed this uh, black and white television camera, which, you know, was able to survive the degree, the, the temperatures and conditions on the moon and uh, beam back the signal. And it was its own it was his own form of video. It didn't. It was not compatible with any kind of video system that existed then or exists now. It was his own system, and it was uh, beamed back to Earth and then converted, shot off a monitor actually, and then beamed around the world through the global satellite network, which had actually only just gone up about two weeks before Apollo Eleven. That's why we were able to watch it. Sometime in the '90s, I think around the time of the 25th anniversary, NASA somebody at NASA said, "Hey, you know, we should take a look at that original master tape." And see if you can get a better image, you know, than that grainy black and white thing we all saw 
um, or you know the copies that we have. There must be. We'll go back to the original master tape and transfer it properly rather than like shooting it off a monitor. And they searched, and they searched, and they searched, and they finally, after several years looking, they finally concluded that it was that that sometime I think in the 1980s they were getting so much satellite information beaming down from space from all of their satellites, and they didn't have hard drives, so they put it on tape. They just would recycle tapes, and somebody recycled the moon landing. <laughs> Oh, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. But I have to say, what we did, we went back and, and found the, the best copies in existence. That, yeah, that original master tape, that's got to be like the most famous missing film in all oh, it of is. history. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's the most famous missing film in history, yeah. It's, it's just absolutely yeah. extraordinary. And it's crazy because we've all seen it, so we know what it shows. It's just like, I, I didn't realize that there had to have been like a better version of it yeah and, and that's, well it's that's incredible like in the movie you'll see shots in mission control where they're watching they've got the the moon landing the video is being projected on the screen this giant screen in mission control in houston and the image is so much better than what we've seen in all the years since like because that's actually what people were seeing but um yeah it's it's an amazing story but other than that nasa's done a pretty good job of of, of um preserving their their footage and yeah there's so much stuff from the early days of film and tv that was just lost because people didn't quite realize what, like how important what they were doing was so uh, on the scale of things this is this is relatively minor just it's this most famous <laughs> film of all time <laughs> but yeah i do i do kind of want to talk about like what was the i guess the arms race like to develop a way to broadcast these images because that like we talk a lot about the tech of building the actual spacecraft but we don't think a lot about like how much work it must have been to come up with cameras that could work on the moon well interestingly enough nasa didn't really want to bring television on these missions they were tasked with a technological engineering mission to put a, a man on the moon and bring him back alive and the idea that they would like want to televise this was kind of, why would we do that? You know, just it's adding weight. It's complicated. It's messing up our, 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 our mission. They would be, they would have been perfectly happy just, you know, going to the moon, taking a few pictures, coming back and telling everybody that they did it. And, uh, it was, uh, the head of uh, public relations at NASA, this guy, Julian Shear, who insisted relatively soon, not, not a long time before Apollo 11 went, insisted you've got to have a television camera. You've got to broadcast this live. And so they did, but you know, yeah, it was an incredible engineering feat to to take you know television cameras in those days were like the size of a refrigerator, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Computers yeah. were the size of a house, you know. And <laughs> yeah. I, that's one of the the great technological innovations that came out of the space program was miniaturization, uh, which has led to the technological revolution that we're all um, that we all live in today. The reason I've got an iPhone in my pocket was you know, derived from that process of intense miniaturization in order to put things on spacecrafts. And the other thing that happened, which, uh, you know, we live with today that's transformed our lives, is the global uh, satellite communications network. That's obviously, you know, that, that all came to be as an outgrowth of the race to the moon. The link up, the first, the link up of a global communications network went into place two weeks before Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And that's why this event that we're celebrating is, is so resonant for people. Cause we all, the whole world, we all watched this live and we felt it sort of common sense of our own, you know, shared humanity because it was a live television event. 
Was it the first thing that was ever broadcast worldwide? If it, if it was two weeks after that network went into place? As a global, yeah, as a global thing that everybody around the world was able to watch, yeah. Interesting. What Was that just like kind of a, was that network put in place for this event or just kind of a coincidence because the space program needed some sort of global satellite network? The whole global um, satellite communications network was part and parcel of what was happening at NASA at that time. So it was all, it was all working together, but no, it wasn't put up specially in order to do this particular thing. No, as right. I said, NASA wasn't, NASA wasn't really that interested until they were forced to in, in, uh, in, in, uh, their goal was not never to televise this live from the moon. It, that was sort of an afterthought. Tell me more about the, this camera that sort of was able to work in the, in the conditions on the moon. Cause that sounds like a, a thing that would be like really hard to build. Well, just to, to miniaturize a television camera right right there was was a very very difficult thing to do, given the size of, of uh, these gadgets at that time, and then the you know the size of the cameras that they took on the spacecraft were not too dissimilar to what we have today. Um, but this particular one that had to be outside, sitting on the moon on a tripod, pointed towards lunar module as the astronauts are running around, it had to survive. I think the the surface temperature with the sun is like 200 degrees. And then, in the, you know, at night, it's going to be minus God knows what, you know, this, it had to, it, it was, it had to survive pretty extreme conditions. And then they had to beam it back to earth through this yeah. with very crude system. Um, and this is why, why you see, you can actually see through people on this image, you know, you, the yeah. astronaut will walk in front of the lunar module and you'll see the lunar module through them. It was a way of just compressing the signal to get this uh, televised image all the way back to earth. I mean, it's just worth, worth keeping in mind just how crude the technology was at that time. Um, the, the computer aboard the, the Apollo um, command module aboard the lunar module had the, the, the computing power that's equivalent to uh, you know, one of those um, electronic greeting cards. <laughs> <laughs> you find, <laughs> you know, the, that's that's what got us to the moon and back. It's, it's really pretty amazing what they did. And the, and so the signal that the the camera communicated with the the monitor back at in the U.S. like that was proprietary. That was like a special kind of um, communication that, yes. that those two devices had. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't NTSC and it wasn't PAL. It was a, it was its own it was its own signal, which is why the the original tape was kind of just taken off the shelf and somewhere this is Unlocked. this is really fa- fascinating <laughs> and so it, the whole thing was developed by westinghouse was that like a like a government contract or or was it i suppose it would have had to have been because um then they would have wanted like proprietary rights to the broadcast or something yeah well i mean the whole space program was a government it was like a combination of government and private contractors you know so that was you know the, the you know uh, this woman i spoke about earlier who worked at mission control she was a specialist at mission control, but she worked for TRW, which was a major military contractor. But, you know, they were doing a lot of stuff for the space program. The, the, the capsule was built by North American Rockwall. The lunar module was built by Grumman out on Long Island. It was all subcontracted, except for the Saturn V. That was, that was built by um, Von Braun and his, his team. Tell me a little bit about the actual worldwide broadcast of these images on our end, not just the technology of it, but like I, of course, I remember the famous Walter Cronkite, you know, chuckling to himself at how how pleased he is about this. But like that's kind of what I know of it. Like, what was the reaction like to seeing these images, both nationally and then all around the world? 
Well, it was, I mean, I was 10 years old when, when we landed on the moon. Uh, I was living in England at the time, so it happened at 4 o'clock in the morning. And um, there was a real unique sense of, of that, that we had done it. Human beings had done this. And it wasn't just an American on the moon. It was, uh, it was one of us. It was uh, and almost even, and even beyond the human race, a real sense that life had left the earth and gone to another world. And everybody all over the world who was listening to this and watching it, by all accounts, experienced this. It was fleeting. It was momentary. But it was, it was genuine. It was almost a, it was a sort of quasi-religious experience that I don't think has, has certainly has never happened before and may never come again. Uh, you know, that first time that you leave the earth. And, there, you know, you've you got to keep in mind, at that time, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 had just come out about a year earlier. Our vision of what the future was going to be like, you know, we imagined the world, a world of, you know, orbiting circular space stations with, you know, artificial gravity and bases on the moon and trips to Mars and we're going to fly around in jetpacks. And there was, a, there was a sense of technological optimism that was pervasive. And I think, I think you know, more generally, just optimism that we could come together and solve, if we could do this, we could solve any problem. I mean, the cliche, if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we, you know, fill in the blank? It's, it's a cliche, but it's true. And there was a sense of optimism that we could overcome our differences and overcome, remember, this was a deeply divided and polarized time, you know, not unlike where we are today, maybe even more so, the assassinations and riots and war and, but there was a sense that we could overcome this. And I think that sense of optimism spilled over even among people who were opposed to the space program, who thought it was a waste of money. There was still a sense that tomorrow is going to be better than today. We talked a little bit about, about NASA PR really wanting these images to, to come back from the moon, but how did they sort of prepare the astronauts, these, these three men who were the first men on this mission, and especially Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, how did they sort of prepare them for you know, what inevitably was this like huge crush of people who wanted to talk to them when they got back to, to earth? Uh, they didn't prepare them. And that's, wow. <laughs> that, you know, that's the thing. So these guys, you know, they're fighter pilots and, and test pilots. They were told to do a job, which was to go to the moon and land the spacecraft, an incredibly daring and risky mission. And as Buzz Aldrin says in our film, you know, you know, the, the, the philosophers, poets, you know, that's not what you want. You want someone who, who can make decisions and keep calm. And Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, those are the guys, If you know, the shit hits the fan. They're the guys that you want to be with because they're just unflappable. We'll make the landing and get you home. But they were totally unprepared to respond to people's questions about it. I mean, people reacted like they'd gone up to heaven and had a conversation with God. Like, you know, what I want to, you know, impart some wisdom to me about what it, you know, what was it like? And uh, they get asked this question again and again for the rest of their lives. And, and they don't know what to say. You know, what, how do you answer that question? Well, <laughs> I bounced around on the moon. I don't know. What, I don't know how to, they weren't trained for that. They weren't trained for that. Yeah, what what are some of the other um, ways that that the space program sort of affected how we watch TV, how we see movies, sort of the the way our global communications network, if you will, the, the mass media. 
how did how did it uh yeah 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 especially going forward like because obviously the images from space have have gotten so much better since the moon landing so tell me a little bit about like the evolution of of that technology uh, and maybe how it's impacted our own viewing experiences in ways we wouldn't think of that's a really interesting question because you know in in chasing the moon we've got some of the most spectacular archival footage. I mean, it was a heyday of 16 millimeter color film. It's, it's stunningly beautiful. But my favorite piece of footage in the whole series is that grainy black and white video image of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon because it's so grainy. It's almost, if you were a Hollywood film director and you were going to make a movie about the first moon landing, that's what you would do, you know? It's this ghostly image being broadcast from another world, and it's kind of breaking up. And uh, it, it had an eerie quality to it. And it's the later missions, when they brought color video cameras there, and they thought that that was going to excite people, and everything was really crystal clear, people just got bored. It's very interesting, because it, it lacked a certain ghostly weirdness to it that, that uh, created a sense of mystery and, and wonder and you really felt in the visuals and the sound how far away this was. And the more real it became, um, the less real it became, in a sense. And if you can imagine people going to Mars now and sending back high-definition video images from the surface of Mars, I wonder how people will react. They might think, oh, that looks like the movie The Martian or something. Oh, I've seen that. I don't know. As a filmmaker, what do you think that that gap is between, like, those ghostly images feeling more real in some ways than um, the crystal clear images. Cause it's, that's also true of, you know, often people say that stuff shot on film feels more real to them than stuff shot on digital, even though the digital stuff is the image is much crisper and clearer generally. I think that's true. I mean, in, in the, in back in 1969, you know, we didn't have the level of sort of CGI computer graphics technology, computer imaging technology that can really recreate almost, you know, anything you can conjure up in your mind, you can make real in a movie now. And we've, we've become accustomed to that. You know, The Martian, I guess, would be a great example of Mars. We've seen, we've almost like we've been to Mars, but that technology didn't exist in the 1960s. I guess 2001 would be the best example of it. But even that doesn't have the sort of intense realness that comes out of the computer-generated imagery we're used to today. And I think that's permeating everything in our politics and everything. You know, what is truth? What is, what is real? What is not real? So it was a, it was a different time. And, it, and, you know, as you know, there are many people who say we didn't land on the moon still to this day. Even I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs> so so people are shouting in my Twitter mentions to debate them. But uh, I, I definitely like when I watched that 1969 footage. Like I know enough about film and TV technology to know that we would have trouble faking like that thing you talk about, sort of the ghostly quality of of the people walking around. We'd have trouble faking that today. So like I am interested in like looking at that question from how do those images in essence prove that we were on the moon beyond just like they're clearly images of people on the moon. Like there's something about the way that they're constructed that just makes them feel more real. And I'm wondering if you have a, a thought on that, either as like somebody who studied this or somebody who's just a filmmaker and thinks about how images convey ideas to us. Well, I think I've already said that I, I, I think the, 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 the ghostly quality of it had a certain realness to it that yeah. that's different than, than if it was, uh, if they'd had a, you know, a high tech, color video camera 
But it, interestingly, with the, uh, the with the the whole moon landing hoax, they faked it thing. We explain this in Chasing the Moon, how this came about, because in fact, the moon landing was faked. Mm. It was faked by the networks because for the most part, until they landed, actually landed on the moon and pulled out the video camera, all they had were was film cameras running that you would never see until you got back to Earth and developed the film and showed it. So it was really an audio experience for the most part. And the networks, in order to fill in time, because they're television networks, they need visuals, they built a set. Uh, they had actors. They had, a you know, in space suits. They had a, 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 a full-size lunar module. And CBS even brought in Stanley Kubrick's special effects whiz, Doug Trumbull, to help out with this. So this is... So this is, and so it's not really a great leap of the imagination to say, well, okay, they did that, and then suddenly they d- filmed the same set with some crude video camera, and you can see the connection to to Stanley Kubrick, who people say, oh, Stanley Kubrick faked the movement. It's silly. It's ridiculous. I mean, I would say, you know, it, it would have been far more difficult to fake the moon landing than, than to actually do it. Um, and then why? And then why do it again and again? You know, it's just. And you'd think if anybody was if anybody was going to. To, to initiate a moon hoax, it would have been the Soviet Union, and then they never did. <laughs> they totally <laughs> accepted that we did it. So anyway, but people believe what they want to believe. When did sort of that that conspiracy theory arise? Because I feel like I, I hadn't really heard it until, I don't know, probably the last 20 years, and it feels like, but was it sort of around right after it happened? Oh, Yeah. It rose uh, a few years, a few years after, in the early '70s. But it was very fringe. But that's when the whole idea started to take root. I mean, you—it's interesting culturally. You had this real turning away from the kind of techno optimism of the '60s. I think because of Vietnam and everything, and the, the growing mistrust of institutions, you see a, a kind of devolution into mysticism and pseudoscience. You know, the a- ancient astronaut documentaries were very popular in the '70s and stuff. And the moon hoax kind of emerges out of this post-Vietnam mistrust of government, and then gets picked up 20 years later by Fox. Fox News broadcast in the, the late 90s, broadcast a quote-unquote documentary about mm. the moon landing hoax as, a, like, as an actual thing. And that kind of just took off, and that, that, that kind of made it mainstream, took this idea that was completely fringe and silly uh, into something that's kind of mainstream and silly. <laughs> the the mass communications network that was sort of made possible by the the NASA space program and the global satellite network and all that like has also advanced this idea that uh, none of it was real, which is like really kind of fascinating and and ironic, I guess it, it would would be the word for it. But I do want to just sort of conclude by by asking you like these images from space still hold like such power for us, like. What is the allure of space to us? What is what is the 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 reason we we keep returning there? Like sort of what uh, what do you sort of still see as the need for a space program? Um, you know, I, I assume that you you like the space program. Maybe you hate it. We're we're going to find out. Well, there are two space programs. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about human space travel or or robotic space travel. They're two either either's fine. Yeah, I think the robotic missions are extraordinary, and I think I, to me the robots are kind of an extension of ourselves, and they can go places that humans can't go. They can endure long duration flight. 
they can be done at, a, at an affordable cost. And, and the images we've gotten back from the outer planets are, are astonishing and, and inspiring. So I'm all for that. Human space travel is a very different thing. And it's much more complicated, obviously, but it serves a different purpose. People, you know, we are human beings. We are emotional creatures. Um, and we like that sort of visceral thrill of feeling like one of us has gone out and, and explored this, this new terrain. You know, I, I, I would say that that famous Earthrise photo from Apollo 8, where you see the, the blue Earth rising over the surface of this dead-like moon, which captivated the world's attention and inspired the environmental movement. I don't know if that would have had the same resonance if it had been taken by a robot as it was. I think the fact that it was taken by a human being is part of the majesty of that picture. Um, so, um, but it's, it's not something you can repeat, you know, the people are pretty bored with the space station, you know, hovering, hovering up there in low earth orbit. Yeah. People were very bored about this, the, the second, third, fourth, fifth you know, missions to the moon. Um, they got excited about Apollo 13 cause it was, you know, a, a, a near disaster. So it's a mixed bag. I don't, I don't think the United States government is going to really get involved in you know, pursuing this as a national goal. But if private enterprise wants to do it, if Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, you know, I think that's great. And I, you know, my hat's off to him. It is like, it is interesting because you saying that, like, I sort of have in the back of my head that we need to go to Mars, sort of putting quotes around that. But like, we've sent many robots to Mars. Many of them are, I mean, they're all still there. Just some of them are, or most of them are dead. Like, do you sort of think the distinction of, of having, like, sending a human to a nut, literally another planet is, I don't want to say moot, because clearly you make a good point about the emotions behind that, but, like, are we not appreciative enough of, of our robot friends, I guess, is what I'm asking. No, I don't think we are. If we're going to really explore the universe, or, or perhaps even, you know, as, as Freeman Dyson says in our film, uh, he's taken the tack that really what we ought to be thinking about is seeding life into the universe and maybe do it through biological engineering, creating life forms that can actually live on other planets. Because every other place in the universe is going to be inhospitable to us because we are of the earth. But maybe, you know, I, I think it is an inspiring vision that, that we live in this unique place. Uh, and I do believe it's a lot more than unique than, uh, I, I choose to think that it's, there's no way to know that we're a lot more unique than, than we think we are. And the idea of spreading life into the universe somehow is inspiring and a wonderful idea that, again, it inspires a sense of our common humanity and a common purpose. So I like that. I don't think it should be the, our number one priority. I think our number one priority should be saving the planet Earth yeah. and, and, and taking care of things here. <laughs> well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you a spin on one of those questions, and that is is going to be, uh, what is kind of your favorite fictional space program story? And obviously, something like Apollo 13, where it's a fictionalized version of a real event, would count. But like, so would something like 2001, which has never happened and probably will never happen. What's your favorite fictional space program story? Hands down, 2001. Without beyond. Well, I saw 2001 about six months before they landed on the moon when I was 10 years old, and it completely changed my life. Uh, up until that time, you know, films were, you know, just sources of entertainment. 
And there was a film that was about big ideas about you know who we who are we as humans where do, where are we going what is our what 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 is the meaning of life where, what is our future as, as uh and and as a 10 year old kid that really kind of blew my mind and as a piece of filmmaking it's the film I, I really started to think seriously about wanting to be a filmmaker and i i and i i never knew what a director did or anything i never thought about whoever makes this but i, I became obsessed with stanley kubrick and I, within a year, seeing two thousand one, I started. Uh, I appropriated the family Super Eight movie camera, as a lot of filmmakers did, and started making movies. You know, um, and I've seen that film maybe I, over twenty times for sure, and uh, I still think it holds up. It's a, it's a it's an absolute masterpiece. It's one of my favorites too. Uh, the movie is Chasing the Moon. You can see it on PBS and also on uh, PBS's websites. The book is also called Chasing the Moon, uh, and they are that's available in stores. Robert Stone, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. This episode of Primetime was produced by Jeffrey Geld. Our thanks to Rebel Talk Studios and our engineer Ernesto Hurtado. Our social media manager is Lexi Shapittle. Nishak Kurwa is the executive producer of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of audio at Vox. I'm your host, Emily Vanderwerf. We'll be back real soon.